a short note on the upcoming podcast. When Connor and I do this podcast, we aim to put in as much research as possible to make an interesting and compelling starter for discussions. And yet we never see ourselves as experts on a topic, instead approaching each episode with a desire to learn and then share those learnings which we find interesting. With this episode, that feeling of not being experts, in inverted commas, has never been truer. As two privileged teenagers living in Southeast England, we cannot claim to understand the struggle that many people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds go through on a daily basis. Although that does not mean we don't feel a desire and a duty to educate ourselves about the situation and happenings of the daily lives of those around us. I will admit that the fact it took until events such as what happened to George Floyd for me to make a conscious effort to learn more about the state of prejudice and racism in our society is shameful. But everyone's journey has to start somewhere and at some point. Prejudice is a bias, often manifesting itself subconsciously, that unfairly shapes our intuitions about the world. It is proven that the best way to tackle any bias is to have an awareness of it. As discussed in the work of Kahneman, an intuition seems correct because it comes fluently to the questioning mind. But we have to double check our intuitions, consider what pool of evidence one is drawing from, and what are the actual facts that guide a given intuition. Having prejudiced intuitions is not in of itself bad, but acting on these intuitions and failing to realise that, since our intuitions are simply a shortcut that the brain uses in decision making, therefore they are by their nature, nature very often mistaken, therein lies the issue. Institutions are also very personal. If one fails to understand the actions of another because they don't seem intuitively correct, consider that other people have different life experiences, different attitudes, opinions and upbringings. This is where education is important, insofar as it increases one's understanding of others' beliefs and behaviours, as well as one's ability to empathise and relate to those around us. Uh, for myself, I believe as humans it is easier to be hateful than loving. It's easier to be ignorant than aware, and it's easier to speak without action. And we are all more often than not set to walk down the wrong path precisely because of its ease and because we are unaware of its destination. But it doesn't have to be so. A conscious effort of, of listening and learning and reflecting is required and then followed by a change in action. And as Pierre previously mentioned, recognizing our prejudices and biases is key to improving. And by no means are we or will we ever be experts, but I'm content with forever being a student in a topic such as this. And this is certainly discomforting knowing we are ignorant and having been so for so long. But we hope our research is the first step for us and perhaps yourselves in starting down the right path and learning more. Yeah, and there are people much better suited to teach us about these issues of prejudice and racism in our society. And for that reason, at the top of the episode description, you'll find a link to a very interesting article that contains much important information on how to help as well as many different further links to interesting and relevant sources. But saying that, we didn't want to remain silent. And what is going on in America should be a spark for all of us to have deeper and sustained discussions among family and friends. Already in the discourse I've heard so far, there have been some claims made with great confidence that seem more like brash opinions than evidence points. Therefore, the episode of this episode of The Musings is aiming to provide some background clarification for these discussions.
So welcome everyone. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the works of Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi, especially their attitudes to violent and nonviolent protest. The phenomena of what you see is all there is, and the representativeness bias that follows with this, especially in the realms of social media. We'll also discuss the moral importance of voting, as well as Taleb's theory of how minorities, not majorities, cause change and why it is imperative we don't remain silent. Yeah, so this episode is obviously very topical, but it's an episode that hopefully might have some, as we said in the preamble, it might have some well, hopefully relevance to us. And we wanted to just do our research and say what we thought we could bring to the discussion. And some of these topics are just providing background, um, looking at some of the phenomena, some of what might be affecting our opinions and what we speak about. So there's some history here, some psychology, and hopefully it'll be an interesting discussion. So the first person to look at, obviously the easiest link to make is Martin Luther King Jr., obviously a very prevalent activist for the rights of black people and all minorities in the 1950s and 60s America. Um, a bit of background, King was born in 1929 to what was then relative to those around him quite a well-off black family uh, growing up in 1930s Atlanta Georgia there was a color bar in place and this meant that for any public service there would be different um, white and black water fountains toilets um, anything to separate the two uh, yeah the segregation between the two races um, in fact, in, when King was growing up, even an ice cream van would have a separate window to serve black people out of, and they would use disposable cups so as not to have black and white people mixing. So it's the state of racism that was so embedded in America uh, when King was growing up. King rose to prominence with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1956. This was triggered by Rosa Parks, and um, you may know the story of her, but Basically, it was a year-long boycott of the buses in Montgomery, Alabama, where King was a, playing a lead role in that. And the aim was to force the bus company to remove segregation on their services. After a year, this eventually led to the Browder versus Gale uh, law case, uh, lawsuit of 1956, where desegregation was ruled unconstitutional. And that was King's first example of removing what we call de jure racism. And... A lot of the difference between King's America and the America we see now is the de jure versus the de facto racism. So de jure means uh, of the law, whereas de facto just means what is the case. And when King was growing up and in 1960s America, there were the things called the Jim Crow laws, which were brought about after the end of slavery and basically meant made it harder for black people to vote, had meant segregation was in place. Uh, basically allowed this stigma. It was all legal to segregate and it was almost legal to be a racist. Um, and King played a big role in removing that de jure racism, but just doing that didn't change attitudes straight away. You still have people who had racist attitudes. In fact, the day when the buses came back after the bus boycott, a sniper attacked one of the buses and shot, the, uh, shot one of the passengers through the leg. So people weren't happy with these changes that King was bringing about. But that was the first big impact he really had and it inspired him to set up the Southern Christian Leadership Council in 1957. So what shaped King's attitudes about the way he protested? So King was 
the son of a, a pastor, he became a pastor himself. Um, but he saw great inequality in the world and he wanted to bring about change, but he wasn't sure how to do it. Early on with the bus boycott, that was a sustained, it was the first, you know, a year-long boycott. This is an incredible amount of time to put into something. Um, he tended to focus on the one-off short-term events that were designed to show the media uh, black inequality. And that's where his biggest successes came through. King was influenced by the Freedom Rides of 1961. So these were, um, there was basically in the North, anyone could ride the buses. There would still be racism, but it was allowed to, black people ride buses. Um, but in the South, they weren't. So black people would take buses and ride from the Northern states into the Southern states on these so-called Freedom Rides. Um, the aim was, in the words of uh, James Farmer, who was one of the organizers, he said, we were counting on the bigots in the South to do the work for us. So effectively, they weren't breaking any laws, but they were making people uncomfortable. And they knew that people would react. And their aim was to, these terrible injustices were happening all the time. But back then, we didn't have social media. It was only the press that would get photos out. And then the cameras weren't perfect. So you, you wouldn't have got 100 shots of something in a video. That just didn't exist. So it was all about the getting a shot, getting a story out there. And this Freedom Ride, the most infamous one was uh, the Freedom Ride to Anniston, Alabama, about which there is a film, and I can't remember its name. But uh, the from riding in Alabama, which is on the southern states of America, the bus was attacked by people in uh, Klan hoods, were burning crosses. They would, with their clubs changed, they chuck firebombs at the bus. So these people were just, the fact they could act that way is, only 60 years ago in America is incredible, but it was terrible. And that did those pictures of the burning buses did have an impact on certain people because it was just ridiculous to see something like this. Um, and that's what really inspired King. He, he said he wanted to operate with, quote, the specific intention of creating a crisis. Um, that was the way he wanted to act. He wanted to provoke the media and, and get those important uh, shots across that would tell the story the right way. And so did it follow that he was successful in his approach? Uh, so King himself probably had two great successes, and those were the 1963 Birmingham uh, marches and the 1965 marches in Selma, both in the state of Alabama. Um, in Birmingham, Alabama, King organized a peaceful protest uh, because he knew that the state governor, uh, who was nicknamed Bull Connor, um, would react in an aggressive way simply because black people were marching and demanding their right to vote. Um, and King was right in this case. They, the, the people marched and Connor, the uh, state marshal, set dogs on them and sprayed them with high-powered hoses before any violence had occurred. And these photos were caught on... Um, in newspapers and obviously sent a message around the world. And then this was quickly followed up in March by King's I Have a Dream speech in the March on Washington. And that sent a powerful message, which might have contributed to or did contribute to the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And passing that Civil Rights Act was a big milestone. That meant the eradication of Jim Crow laws. So it was one of the last um, acts that really ended that de jure racism in America. Um, of course, racism still existed, and that was the issue. Uh, and later, King's second big success was in the town of Selma, where 
King had complained previously, whilst in uh, his letter from a Birmingham jail, he pointed out that in Alabama, there were more black people in jail than there were on the voting rolls. And only 20 people could vote. And there were these ridiculous um, things. So there was one that said you had to have a grandfather who voted to be able to vote. And of course, if you've never voted before, if you're a black person or a minority, it's been segregated. You, Of course, your grandfather won't have voted. So you won't be allowed to vote. And they were asked the most ridiculous questions in the polling booths. Um, one of the most infamous examples is how many suds are there in a bar of soap? And then obviously they couldn't get that right. And then they weren't allowed to vote because they were deemed, um, you know, they, they, so it's just the level of racism that was prevalent then that was so obvious. Um, it really had to be tackled. And that was, you get rid of the de facto, but you, the de jure, you still have the de facto. And in Selma, what happened was another protest, but it was born from uh, black people simply queuing up to vote at a polling booth. And um, the white population of Selma, Alabama, uh, there was tear gash, live rounds were fired on the people. The most incredible thing was that uh, venomous snakes were thrown onto the queue of voters. and if you just consider the ridiculousness of that, that racism could be so prevalent in society that someone could throw a snake at someone else, go to all that trouble, have no one mm. question them. And wow. we're seeing some acts of violence now in America and police brutality still exists. But back then it was just uh, beyond terrible, some of these opinions people had. And this Selma march ended up with the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and that was ended up getting a lot more black people on the voting uh, on the roll. And that was King's second great success, really. But King was successful in the South with those two removals of the de jure. But mm. he then moved on to the uh, the Northern strategy, which was focusing on the uh, ghettos of Chicago. And this is probably King's last attempt to tackle the racism in America. And unfortunately, this one failed. And this is because even though such great steps were taken to get people on the vote on the into the electorate, to get people be able to sit at a bar with those other citizens of their own country that simply had different skin, even though these steps were taken um, in the north, where King tried to organize rallies in Chicago, um, the mayor there ensured that the police kept the line, let the people protest. And there was no violence. So there were no none of these shocking photos coming out. And I guess the sad part is that then there was no change because there, the press could spin a story that the reason King had to protest nonviolently is because the second anyone stepped a toe out of line, they would become the story. The second one protester threw a brick through a storefront, that would be the headline the next day. So King and the people, and obviously the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that came out to protest, they they couldn't act violently because of the narrative they'll be told by the press. And we found this in the North that actually a lot of white Northerners found that this was too close to home, these protests up in Chicago, and they didn't want the change when it was close to affecting them. Um, so the conditions in the ghettos in the Northern and Western cities of America were very poor, and, and King couldn't do too much to change that because the removing the de facto racism requ would require a real change in attitudes. And even 60 years on, we see that perhaps that you know, that de facto racism hasn't been completely quashed. So it would be tough for King to do that. Um, and King was eventually assassinated in 1968. His 
uh, he has a, a day now, a national holiday, which is the third Monday of January. So that they make efforts to commemorate him, but you still have to try and change people's opinions. And that is the, it's interesting to see what King did. And he took, made such great steps. And there were some things that there has been change made, but clearly as we're seeing now, not enough. Um, an interesting fact about King's life and, and how he impacted the protests we see today, obviously in many ways, but the Black Lives Matter movement actually has no single leader. And that is in part because of Martin Luther King, that he was such an incredible leader. He drew people to the cause, but his assassination was a terrible loss. And people don't want another event to color that today. So we see he influences even now and plays an incredible role in America and struggle, fighting a struggle that has continued for 60 years. But yeah, that's what I find about King and incredibly interesting character um, who did so much for America. I was I was just thinking of this, that there is no one figurehead for the movement today. Um, but I did remember that not only was King assassinated, but Mahatma Gandhi, who was also yeah. a leader for uh, South African and Indian movements, was later assassinated in life. Yeah. Um, and that provides a nice segue onto yeah. Mahatma Gandhi himself. So Mahatma Gandhi, or his full name, Mohandas Karamchad Gandhi. Well, he was born in India and he later moved to London to train to be a lawyer. And he then went back to India to be with his family for a while before moving to South Africa, where he lived for 21 years. And while he was there, um, he fought for the Indian rights and the rights of the Indian people. In and during his time in South Africa, uh, in the earliest 20, in the early 20th century, uh, he received a lot of racism from the white inhabitants there. And he got to witness firsthand the treatment of not only his own Indian people, but also uh, the African people who were present there. The racism was phenomenal. And he protested many things while he was there. So there was a bill proposed to deny Indians the right to vote. And although he protested this, uh, it was his protests were unsuccessful. But what he did find was that a huge amount of awareness was raised as to uh, the presence of such a bill. And later he built on this awareness by uh, protesting against an act compelling for the registration of, of the Indian and Chinese populations in Johannesburg. And this is where he protested in 1906. And he first employed his methodology of Satyagraha. And Satyagraha uh, evolved into his form of, of peaceful protest, of non-violent protest. But it was a lot more than that. It was a lifestyle as well. And this was successful in Johannesburg, this protest. Uh, you mentioned Satyagraha there. Uh, what, what were the tenets behind that philosophy? So Satyagraha is a Sanskrit compound word, first and foremost, comprised of two words, which is Satya, which means truth, and Agraha, which means clinging or holding firmly onto, or a polite insistence. And so in its literal translation, Satyagraha means clinging to truth, but it later became um, more familiar, familiarly known as adherence to truth. 
And so this is the philosophy behind uh, such a methodology. And it is, as Gandhi described it, a truth force, or later became known as a soul force. And in this aspect, it's a kind of philosophy uh, that categorizes the nonviolent resistance in that through truth and through love can uh, one deliver more than through brute force. But it's more than just clinging to truth. Satyagraha was a form of self-purification in um, completing the act of Satyagraha. You purified yourself and those around you. It is the soul force attainable by self-purification. And it was also considered an attitude of the mind and an education for it was a tool for people's awakening to to come to the realization of how we as a people can uh, progress. You say so it's clinging to the truth is Satyagraha. It, what is the truth that Gandhi is clinging to? What are those ultimate life truths he's trying to get to? Mm. So there were three types of truth that Gandhi talks about. So there was truth in speech as opposed to falsehood. There was uh, what is real and what exists as opposed to the non-existent and what is good as opposed to what is evil. And so he considered these three truths um, in Satyagraha. And in his words, he said, truth implies love and firmness engenders and therefore serves as a synonym for force. And so he defined it in such a way that the truth and the firmness together provided a force of truth and love and non-violence. And he later went on to say that the Satyagraha's object is to convert, not to coerce, the wrongdoer. And so here, this is the essence of the non-violence aspect. You are attempting to and seeking to, a change of heart in the opponent not through your own actions, but through their own realizations and through their own observations. And this is done through um, not a passiveness on your part, but through an active, uh, through an active devotion to nonviolence. And this, this applies today. You know, there are a lot of people who, who've read, who um, have certain viewpoints and take certain viewpoints. Um, but you can't reason another out of a view they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. And often we find that the only way we can hope to enlighten these people is to have themselves change their own heart and be made aware of it. So it's interesting. A lot of people appear to think that Gandhi's work was hugely influenced by the Hindu and Buddhist philosophies that preceded him. And although they're very similar, it was actually Leo Tolstoy, a famous Russian author of the book War and Peace, that actually in a letter titled A Letter to a Hindu, that Gandhi was made aware of not only these Hindu and Buddhist philosophies, but also of this idea of truth and love uh, catalyzing change. And in this letter, Tolstoy argues that every civilization has consisted of the majority being ruled and the minority ruling. Yet in every individual, 
a spiritual element is manifest that brings and unites all life and it attains this through love and because it's present in every society and in every religion this idea of of a love that unites people Tolstoy considered this to be inherent in human nature and to contain in itself truth and he went on to say that this love has been obscured by the individuals who rule because no because with the masses knowing of them it may undermine their campaign to rule and only through non-violence and an objective lens freeing themselves from the ideologies presented in religion and of the early sciences uh, can we love and be truly free that's the essence of tolstoy's letter and there, i recommend reading it first and foremost but there's a lot of very truthful statements in it and tolstoy's closing statement is and i quote it will in due time emerge and make its way to general recognition and the nonsense that has been obscured will disappear of itself and with it will go the evil that humanity now suffers and this it that tolstoy refers to is the truth what would he, he what he would say is synonymous with love and he said that this truth is the only thing that we need you know and he titled it the law of love and importantly in his letter tolstoy quotes uh, the krishna and the hindu chorale and and these texts were written long ago around the 8th and 6th century uh, bce and they contain and formalize many philosophies that later encapsulated gandhi's approach um, and one quote in it from the hindu chorale states the punishment of evil doers consisted in making them feel ashamed of themselves by doing a great kindness and that's a very poignant uh statement to make in that actually to punish those who do wrong is only to make them aware of their wrongdoing by showing them a great kindness and it's in this statement presented in tolstoy's letter that gandhi uh, realized that only through non-violence towards those oppressors towards those who do wrong and seek to oppress everyone else only through non-violence and showing them that great kindness can we hope to change uh, not only their hearts but the society as well so we can see gandhi's ideology has evolved from um, the reading of tolstoy's letter and in it the mentioning of the uh the krishna and the um the chorale and in these two texts we see a an idea emerge known as ahinsa and ahinsa to break it down hinza means to strike and ahinsa would be the opposite so not to strike and again this sums up the idea of non-violence and it's actually a key virtue in hinduism buddhism and jainism it's one of the five precepts of buddhism and it is a cardinal virtue of jainism so all beings share a divine spiritual energy and thus to hurt another being is to hurt oneself and that's really the concept of ahinsa is that 
you don't want to hurt another. Through hurting another, you hurt yourself. And if this concept sounds familiar, you may recognize it from the teachings of Jesus Christ <laughs> in that if a man strikes you on one cheek, on one cheek, then turn the other cheek. And it's no coincidence that these concepts seem very familiar. They seem to have that manifest truth that Tolstoy talked about earlier. They naturally arise because they seem right. And these ideas of nonviolence were formalized around the 8th century BCE by Jain philosophers and possibly even earlier in the Brahmanical verdict texts. Um, and thus they've trickled down through the religions over the year, through Hinduism, Buddhism, and also Christianity. And they later paved way for Aquinas's just war theory and other self-defense philosophies, which in themselves led to the fruition of many martial arts. So we can see how we can see how much these ideologies and philosophies permeate through everything that we we can see in the modern world. And they all started from um, concepts that were well known long, long ago. And the power of tr and truth of such techniques and methodologies is manifest today. Uh, we see with peaceful protest, love is transferred to more and more via media coverage. In Gandhi's time, the success of these nonviolence protests were captivated by the media. And it was only through the media's attention that um, his process actually worked. Yeah. So how successful did Gandhi's uh, philosophy prove in practice? So at the beginning, it, as I said, it, it wasn't too successful. He, he witnessed failures of, of protest against bills that were eventually passed. But as time went on, and more people subscribed to his philosophies, uh, they became vastly successful. And these can be seen through events such as the Salt March or the Salt Satyagraha of April 1930, in which he marched 388 kilometers from Ahmedabad to Dandi, and just to make salt himself, um, with the declared intention of breaking the salt laws, which the English imposed on uh, colonial India. And thousands of Indians joined him on his march, and it was a peaceful protest. That was one of the, the, the largest successes that Gandhi experienced using his, his ideology. And later, he employed the same ideology in uh, seeking India's independence, which was later granted in 1947, after many more peaceful protests. But un uh, underscoring both of these successes is the media coverage. Without the the people showing up and the pictures and the the uh, articles written and delivered to people around the world, Gandhi's philosophy may not have been as successful. It was only through uniting everyone under the same philosophy and everyone else in the world witnessing this unity. Uh, was Gandhi successfully able to combat the oppression by seeking that change in heart that Tolstoy uh, talked about. And in Tolstoy's words, making its way to general recognition, this is really what Gandhi sought to do, was to make everyone aware of what was happening. And this was definitely accomplished. So that's a lot of the, the facts about Gandhi and King's lives. And 
it, I think it'll be interesting to discuss the the similarities and differences. Because in my mind, before researching this podcast, I saw Gandhi and King as the two stalwarts of nonviolent protest. They're the two names that come to mind when you think of pacifist, I, for me at least. But there are actually some, some there's a lot of different similarities, but there are a lot of key differences. I think it'll be interesting to discuss some of those. Mm. Um, and both a similarity, both so were pertaining to the media. They sort of took their protest as a as a way to approach the media, as a way to get opinions out there and spread their opinions. And that is because they were protesting in the mass media age, which really began um, around the turn of the 20th century, um, when you had print newspapers having a lot higher circulation. Um, and that explains why they turned to the, to the media with their actions. But we also see the limited scope with which the media can tell the story. The influence is the fact that there can't be much variance in their protests. I'd, so King was definitely limited by the fact that he couldn't act violently. But Gandhi, did he tell his followers, was there that same warning to not act violently? Or was there just an assumption that you won't act violently because it's right? Yeah, so he, he did outright tell his followers not to act violently and that he encouraged them to um, bear upon them any um, hardships that the British uh, rule sought to uh, throw upon them. So any beatings or shootings, he said to just go through these. He said just put up with them and only through the mass suffering will the British realize what they're doing is wrong. Often he was commanding so many people. At the time, India had a population of 200 million. Um, there were so many people that he tried to unite that not all of them shared the same mentality. And he often ran up against a lot of people who likewise wanted the independence of India and the rights for the Indian people, but disagreed with his idea of of nonviolent protest and a lot of them uh, protested and rioted in India and were later gunned down by the British uh, in response. And back in Britain, when this was reported on, it was hailed as a victory uh, to have all these these rioters shot down and shot dead. And so people like to see that um, any kind of rebellion against the British rule was crushed people like to see yeah. it it's interesting so, that gandhi although he had his philosophy he definitely wanted to act he had two ways to react to the oppressor two well three he could have submitted but obviously that is, is the wrong course of action that's you're mm. not going to change anything mm. two ways to bring about change was either to act violently and retaliate against or simply you know peacefully enact that civil disobedience um and it's interesting that when they acted violently, uh, you said the rioters, they couldn't get the message across because this is an issue I think we get with the narratives is when people act violently against the rule, you can tell the story that perhaps they're thugs in some way or, or they don't understand and their, vi their violence isn't understood. But whenever someone acts violently, they, they tend, they all normally always have a just cause behind this reaction the people of india were being oppressed by the british uh, rule and they wanted freedom from it so they had a cause to act violently but it was only when 
Gandhi came with his peaceful protest that then the media said, they almost said, hang on a second, they're not reacting like we thought they would. They're not, you know, coming at us with, with weapons and retaliating. No, they're just almost, they're being moral in such a great way and being just this like ultimate role models for us that then you bring about this questioning and you bring about change to questioning. Yeah, and I think in that realization is the power of the nonviolent protest in that uh, the oppressors and the people of the oppressors are saying the British, the British population, when they read about it in the papers, it's very easy for for people to make up their minds and say, well, if they were if they were rioting, they were obviously ill intentioned, right? So for someone to commit acts of violence, they themselves must be barbaric and brutish and not seeking anything of a higher justice. They only seek injustice. But once you stare at it at an innocent civilian and they don't retaliate when you when you hit them. In that you realize you are in the wrong mm. in that you realize that you are the oppressor when you don't get like you said, you don't get that violent response that you thought was warranted or that you thought they thought was warranted. I think that's that's really what these philosophies of of Gandhi in Satyagraha, that's what they tap into. It's that direct channel into the oppressors hearts to make them realize that actually what they're doing is wrong. Um, and then a difference with King actually is Gandhi simply was there in the obedience. They would perform acts that would disrupt the way government could run itself. But just by being there, just by having human bodies on the ground and it has an impact on people. King, his difference was he actually worked a lot more closely with Malcolm X later in his career. And, and uh, Malcolm X, for those of you perhaps uh, who don't listen, who's another activist, he was part of the Nation of Islam. And then he favoured more violent protests earlier in his life. Actually, later in his life, he came to see peaceful protests the way forward. But there are people being angry as well. And I think maybe a difference we can explain here that King definitely felt restrained into peacefulness. He had to act that way. Mm. Um, and King, but then King also provoked. He had to act in a provoking manner. It wasn't just good enough to, to live your life peacefully. You had to go and make the people react and make them realize, make them do that intuitive move that they now realize is wrong. Um, at one point, King is actually in the Birmingham riots. King actually had children as young as six out protesting. And it's quoted as saying, quote, uh, you know, we've got to get something going. The press is leaving. And I think that just points to how the battle, the uphill battle King was facing, that he had to really like tug on these people's heartstrings to get them to notice any change. Um, but also that difference is you talk about Tolstoy and, and or Gandhi, you know, I had the Tolstoy and the idea that human is good. Um, I think King was up against something a lot different because he was dealing with this, well, system that had just entrenched racism that was in the law. And I think if you ask a lot of white people in, you know, early 19th, 20th century America, especially in the southern states, are all humans good? They might say yes, but they might not agree that that definition of human covers all creeds and all skin colors. Mm. So I think King, the world he grew up in, 
as a pastor, as, as a Christian, a, a Baptist, a low church, he would have definitely believed all humans to be equal, all humans to be good. And perhaps I'm putting words in his mouth there, and this is maybe me just going off what I, I read, but it seems to me that or a lot of people protesting with King would think actually maybe not all humans are good because you see the way some of these uh, Southerners act reacted towards nonviolent protest and the way they just refused to sit at a, a sandwich bar with uh, people of a different creed or a different uh, race. And I think that perhaps King, that might have explained some of the violence because all of a sudden you're not working against a good force. Whereas Gandhi had this ultimate belief, these people know the right way, but they just haven't been exposed to it. Whereas King and those people protesting with King, and maybe some people say, still think, do, do people know the right way? Is there that inherent human goodness? Mm. It's interesting. I would say that most humans have a fidelity towards empathy in that not only can they feel it themselves, but they realize that others can feel it too. And, and empathy is, is a huge driving force in, in a lot of what we do. Gandhi's philosophy was very much relying on the empathy of people. It kind of presupposed that in the first place, these people may be doing wrong, yes, right? But they may not always do wrong later when that empathy has its way. And are you making the argument that these people in America uh, would never come round to? I think to believing with the situation there was 1960s America, just some of the attitudes, um, I can't read the quotes because they're so just the bigoted language of them. Some of these white people, they, they say racism is learned, but racism was really entrenched in that society, that it was the norm. Not for everyone. I'm not saying everyone was, but there were these people that would go out and just beat up a black person just because he was there. Because... I think what it is, is empathy to your human being, but where do you draw the boundaries of your community? Who is them and who is us? And I think there was definitely a, a feeling in United America that them was people who weren't white. And it's a ridiculously arbitrary line to draw. And if you live with those ideas for 40, 50 years of your life, and you've always had the agreement in your community that it's right, it can be very hard to, to bring about change in those people. And the fact that you keep knocking at the door and trying to bring about change, like these protests were doing, these peaceful protests were doing. And King was unsuccessful with many of his protests. And people before him in the NAACP had been unsuccessful. And these, these people weren't taking notice. The oppressors weren't taking notice of the fact they were oppressing people. And I think that's why you get kind of the violence coming around and you say, I, I gave it a shot. I tried to appeal to empathy, but now it's an injustice that is ridiculous. Mm. I guess there's a difference between how it's perceived in, in its own day and in the days that follow. So say with us, you know, 50 years on uh, or, or close to 100 years on from when Gandhi started. With time comes a change in attitude. Mm. And actually that change in attitude originated from these protests in themselves. And so now we're able to look back and say, look how bigoted these people were. Mm -hmm. Look how wrong they were to say these things. Like you said, you refrain from saying some of these statements because of just how abhorrent that language is. You know? But it's only through 
documenting that language and people protesting, while it may not have had the success in its own day, has led to you being able to look at this and go, that is wrong. Yeah. That is fundamentally wrong. And you can see that it has shifted our views slowly, yeah, in a kind of glacial way. It has shifted everything along so that nowadays we can appreciate and realize that actually, while it may not have had the success in its own day, it has gone on to to cause greater yeah. success. If it weren't for these people, would we be looking back now and say they're on the wrong side of history? Because although mm. we say these people are so bigoted, they grew up in the society around them. Mm. These views they had would have been in, in, in many ways learned. Mm. And can you truly look at yourself and say, I would have been able to rise above that if my whole society had been making these statements and that had been the, the truth, the subjective truth within that community. Mm. So it is thanks to the work these people did and they did. They talk about the concept of the Overton window. It's a concept in politics, but it's basically about what's acceptable. So you right. have in the middle, you have what is the most acceptable, what is the most politically correct. And on either side to the most extremes, you have what is less and less correct. Mm. But this window will shift, this Overton window. And so you see, you might see now the phenomena they think that a lot of political commentators say that Trump and, and um, the, the far right, the populism, nationalism we're seeing rising up recently has shifted the Overton window towards the right. So now what used to be extreme is nearer the middle and what used to be very extreme is the new extreme. And, and then these attitudes shift. And I think maybe that's what we saw back then with the work these people did was in their day, they didn't change things. But like you said, that glacial process, they shifted the Overton window where all of a sudden what had been perhaps what really sounds wrong, but was almost, it was not an attitude you'd be questioned on or it was an attitude you could hold without running a guilty conscience. What used to be you know, on that, that far right edge or that far edge of the Overton window has now just been moved way way into the extremes where these attitudes are just deplorable nowadays mm. yeah and i mean to that i would totally agree and, and actually go back to tolstoy's closing remarks in his essay where he says in due time it will emerge and make its way to the general recognition um and and that's really what we're seeing here is that time the greatest healer in a way uh, only through time yeah. do these things uh kind of emerge you know the truth emerges and and while this window that you talk about may shift to the right and to the left the same way a stock might go up and down mm. uh, many times in one day you have to look at the trend of where it's going and often yeah. that window may shift back and forth back and forth like you've seen over the past few years but it will eventually land on what yeah. is true and what is right because only in time does it emerge when was Tolstoy writing? When did he write to Gandhi? When was that correspondence? That correspondence took place in 1908. I want a major thoroughfare. I'm looking at um, a philosopher who came to mind whilst having a discussion is Henry David Thoreau. He uh, was an American living in 19th century, so 1800s, uh, around the, the mid-century was where he did most of his work. And he developed a philosophy of transcendentalism, which okay. um, was strongly influenced by Eastern thought, like you said, Gandhi was in, and Tolstoy was influenced by this Eastern thought, uh, which is all about you have the ultimate knowledge of truth and understanding is an individual process. The, the, the interesting point, so Thoreau was one of the first people to really talk about civil disobedient acts and um, going against government when you think it's wrong. So Thoreau spent um, time in jail. He just didn't pay tax. 
he just said he protested the government, so he just refused to pay taxes and he went to jail for it. And you think if everyone did that act, the jails would be too full and the government had to review their tax policy. Um, in the end, someone just bailed him out and he was the only one that didn't pay his tax. So it didn't have that strong an impact. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he he wrote in his book, um, uh, civil, uh, under that, the titular book, Civil Disobedience, that the, the government, uh, quote, has not the vitality or force of a single living man, end quote, basically saying the individual is the center of moral process, progress. And he uh, advocated nonviolent protest from this. Uh, and I think that's important because we see that what actually happened and the reason you can get rid of de jure racism, but deal with the de facto issue is it's all about the fact that a society's opinions and a society is made up of individuals. So you have to affect each individual's opinion. And, and we can see there the government could remove the laws, but what it took was people protesting and people reading in the newspapers about these and people seeing the images and the appeal to their empathy. That's what brought about the change. And it would be slow because these ideas have to spread through a society. Mm. So that's been a, a longer than usual discussion on policies and philosophies adopted by Martin Luther King Jr. as well as Mahatma Gandhi and a discussion on the merits and the successes and overlaps between both their methodologies. Yeah, we went long there. So uh, expect that's part one of our discussion. You expect to see a part two coming up as well. And otherwise, um, we've got an Instagram page now at The Musings Podcast, no capitals, no spaces. Um, we'll be posting updates on there of keeping you up to date with the episodes. And we'll also put ex additional photographs and um, notes that we found from there. And then there's a surprise coming up in episode 10. So stay tuned for that. But as always, links to all the articles we discuss will be found in the description. Please take the time to educate yourself on, on what's going on around us and stay curious. Thank you.